Hey guys, welcome back to the Detours Podcast. I'm Bill Wheeler, and our show is brought to you by Blackbeard Media, with support from our friends at the Pulitzer Center. This week I caught up with Azam Ahmed, the Mexico Bureau Chief for the New York Times. Azam started his career on the business beat for Dow Jones Newswires, then he covered education for the Chicago Tribune, before heading back to New York to report on hedge funds for the Times. In 2012, he was posted to Afghanistan, where he wrote human interest stories at a time of waning foreign coverage. His reporting culminated in a New York Times Magazine feature about the struggles of an Afghan police unit on the front line of the fight against the Taliban. He's also crossed over into fiction, publishing a short story in Granta. For the past two years, he's been based in Mexico City, with a writ that spans 12 countries around Central America. His reporting focuses on migration, organized crime, human rights, and the culture of impunity that plagues the region. And of course, now Trump. So, Azam, you've got an interesting beat these days, man. Interesting times in Mexico. Um, you've got violence engulfing the country. You've got uh, President Peña Nieto, whose approval ratings are at historic lows. He's been trying to uh, salvage, in a measured way, a relationship with the new administration that's coming in and announcing major policy shifts on Twitter all hours of the night. Mm-hmm. How does that? Uh, how does that affect the, the news cycle and your job to, to cover a dynamic region? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I like about working for the Times is typically you you get to spend a lot of time and kind of determine what the news is that you cover. The breaking news happens, but by and large, it's it's thematic reporting, it's investigative reporting. So what it's done for me more than anything is meant I kind of have to stay more chained to my desk. I have to be in Mexico City more. I typically travel 60, 70% of my time out in Central America, the Caribbean, Cuba, and now, a tweet can upend my week. A tweet can mean I'm suddenly having to delve into policy issues, which probably didn't inform the tweet, but nonetheless have to inform my reporting. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been interesting in one respect because it's allowed me to kind of to sit back and explain some of the things I know, but I maybe haven't reported on before, about the dynamic in Mexico, about sort of the political structure and the way that impunity works here. I think my challenge now, in addition, you said, how is this affecting my job? It's trying to figure out how to remain critical and vigilant about impunity here, which I think remains the biggest issue and the biggest long-term issue. You know, President Trump is an existential for Mexico. He's four to eight years of headache. But 50 years from now, it'll still be the impunity that gnaws at the society. It'll still be the fact that 98% of crimes and murders go unsolved. It'll still be the fact that corruption isn't just a facet of governance, it's often part and parcel of governance. So, so yeah, my, my struggle has also been how do I maintain a focus on what really matters when the news is, is you know, sweeping everything up with it. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I wanna come back to the culture of impunity in your reporting here, but maybe we'll backtrack. Tell me a little bit about your path into journalism. You, you took much more of a sort of established, diligent ladder climbing approach to journalism. <laughs> Did that, do you always want to be a journalist? You also write fiction. Just tell me a little bit about what, what drew you to journalism and, and did that experience you know, prepare you and, and really help you develop a, a multitude of beats? You had some economics reporting that shows up yeah. a lot in your analyses. Um, yeah, my path to journalism, I didn't do any journalism in college. I didn't work for the high school newspaper. I didn't work for the, they call it the Cavalier Daily. That was the newspaper at the University of Virginia. It was after, so I actually had a really shitty job after I graduated from college. It's kind of in that pre-graduation angst. I just accepted something sort of in 
wasn't in finance. It wasn't, it wasn't loosely in finance. And, um, and yeah, I like before I took the job, I did an internship with the Wall Street Journal in Europe for their editorial page. And that, that really, after I did that, I was like, holy shit, this is such a, this is such a cool way to make a living. Like, I can't believe somebody would actually pay me to do this. So I went and took that shitty finance job and was there for maybe like five, six months, and then I just bailed. So I applied for this internship thing at the Chicago Tribune. And, uh, and yeah, I, I went out there and it was like fucking like seven rounds of interviews with people who like read everything about you. And it was kind of brutal and there was a bunch of people up for it. And then I guess I, I got it. And uh, so I went out there and, and yeah, I took a big pay cut actually, cause it was, it was more of like a, I used to call it the glor- a glorified internship. It was basically two years and they called it the residency. And you know, it was like death, carnage and mayhem where you're beat in Chicago. And you just, mm. you know, we're out on the streets all the time. I mean, it was a fucking incredible experience in terms of really learning how to do street reporting. Of course, I didn't know anything about that. I hadn't done that before. You know, I just sat at a desk and written about currencies or fucking written think pieces on the European Parliament for the, you know, for the editorial pages of Wall Street Journal. Now you're on the in streets of Chicago. Yeah, now I was in Chicago. Um, was that a shock? I mean, how did that feel? That was fucking great, man. Like, the other thing was, my high school was a crazy, rowdy high school. It, you know, so I would go into these communities where... I felt pretty comfortable knocking on doors, sitting on people's porches, talking to folks. I realized street reporting was one of my absolute favorite things. And I think for some, some, I mean, sometimes for reporting, you have to go and you look for the empirical and then you analyze it and then you go and you try and find the anecdotal that matches it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can go and find the anecdotal in search of the empirical. And street reporting for me was just, it was awesome. Ground up. Yeah, it, I mean, it, after a while, I did start to, because if you become like a street reporting kind of person on a metro desk, especially as a young reporter, they're going to send you to every homicide that matters. Every year, there'd be two or three marquee cases of a kid getting caught in, in gang crossfire, getting killed, and you'd have to go and figure out who the kid was, find his family, find his mom, find his church, like just investigate the whole thing, and it started to feel, I don't know, almost voyeuristic. After a while, like. I'm just channeling these were these worlds in eight, nine hundred thousand words. And it's going out to suburban Chicagoans who for whom these stories only serve to kind of validate the the violence and and I don't know presuppositions. Trump view of the inner city. Yeah, exactly. And I and so I I became I began to grow a little bit conflicted about just doing the the death, carnage, and mayhem, and it, you know, gracefully, and I'm grateful for the fact that they, that at some point, maybe two years in, they kind of took me off that and were like, just do whatever you want to do. Kind of gave me an open enterprise beat. So I kind of started doing more, more investigative stuff downtown, um, and then eventually decided I wanted to cover public, public education. To me, public education was sort of an excuse to write about any urban condition under the sun, right? Like you can write about poverty, you can write about domestic violence, you can write about gang violence. And that just kind of became the avenue through which I explored, to me, one of the great civil rights issues of our era, which is educational inequality, the education gap, and also continue writing about people and poverty in, in Chicago. It's such a great way, it's such a great city to explore those themes. Tell me a little bit about how you got to Afghanistan and made that move. Sure, so I, I got hired by the Times in 2010. 
after I'd been at the Tribune for four years. And like the Times has this really interesting tendency to just like find people and be like, great, you've been covering gangs and inner city crime and poverty. How about hedge funds? I, I mean, that was literally what happened. They hired me to cover hedge funds. And I remember the first day I sat down with my new editor for lunch, I, I literally, when he told me I was gonna be covering hedge funds, I didn't know what a hedge fund was. And so I tried to play it off. And I think he knew. <laughs> we both had this, oh, this is gonna suck moment. <laughs> I've got to I've got to take this fucking green kid and teach what a hedge fund is and I'm like I got to learn a whole new terrifying world where I don't have family or friend connections and uh and I don't have a natural interest in that world other than to I don't know understand and maybe expose things about it. So I did that and uh and there was a 6 month period when I started where I basically didn't sleep. I mean it was miserable. I I remember I'd go to bed really late, wake up really early going to the office and, you know, I was hearing terms I'd never heard before, having to sit down in corporate offices with lawyers and any hedge fund who would talk to me and just try and understand the universe and what, again, it's the same thing you do when you go to a foreign country. It's like how, what matters about this world? What is of import? Not within the world, but to the broader world. What is a hedge fund? What does it mean? What do they do? So all of this is to say, while it was probably the most difficult and terrifying assignment, Certainly not Afghanistan, certainly not Mexico or Salvador. It was definitely covering hedge funds. That was the, that for me was the scariest because I didn't know shit about it. And like, it's easy to be intimidated and you have to work so much harder to make a story interesting. And so those skills acquired, trying to turn, you know, this murky kind of world of high finance into what, what you would call say front page worthy news and information and analysis, was fucking hard. So, you know, you show up in Afghanistan, public appetite is waning. How do you convince your, what's that story, struggle like to convince your editors to give you the space to tell these stories? How do you decide, you know, how do you, how do you convey what's going on to the public that is distracted by all the other tumult in the world? I kind of found that, that rehumanizing that war was what I wanted to do. You know, first off, chronicling the changes and the big effects. And I think one of the advantages I have is I, I wasn't wedded to this very American-centric war in the past. You know, if you'd been there since 2004 or five, it was all about the Americans and what they were doing in Afghanistan. If you came in in 2012, the American footprint was a lot smaller. Combat operations were ending as they were endlessly telling everyone the Afghans were gonna take over. And so I think it freed me up. In some cases, I had senior colleagues who wanted to do the big story of the day. So I kind of got to look around on the margins and it forced me to be more creative. So like my first, it wasn't even a big story, but my first you know, sort of story that got a lot of recognition, at least internally at the Times, I, um, I was browsing the local news and I saw the story about two sisters dying on the same day in the same way they both poisoned themselves in the town of Mazari Sharif. And it was devastating. I was like, fuck man, there's something there. Why would these two girls kill themselves on the same day in the same way? There's got to be a great yarn. It's like Metro reporting. You find that great field detail. And from there, you figure out, okay, what does this mean? What am I seeing and how do I contextualize it in a wither Afghanistan kind of way? So I remember telling my editor, and my editor was like, ah, yeah, I, uh, I guess. Okay, yeah, go up there and see what you see, and we'll talk about it. So I went up and met with the family, and the family was devastated, and the story was just so rough. Basically, the younger daughter 
was in love with a boy and her older sister found out about it. And this is Afghanistan where like the term forbidden love isn't a cliche, it's actually true. And, uh, and so the, the, the older sister got in a fight with the younger sister saying, you can't be this way, you have to behave properly. And then the mom comes and catches them fighting and slaps the younger sister and tells her not to fight with her older sister. So the father keeps rat poison in the house. And the younger girl, to send a message to her family about how distraught she was, took some of it. This girl starts foaming at the mouth. They race her to the hospital and the mom looks at the older sister and then blames her. Says, you know, if she dies, this is on you. So the older sister's now devastated and in the same kind of way, decides to poison herself. And so the family is with the younger daughter at the hospital as she's dying. Meanwhile, their other daughter who's at home is taking rat poison. So anyways, the, the younger daughter winds up dying and the family's devastated and everybody comes home the next day. And the father has been with the younger daughter the whole time. And he finds out at home, there are now two coffins and he realizes, holy shit, my second daughter's also dead. So he has a heart attack and goes to the hospital. Same hospital for all three girls, all three family members. Anyways, I was trying to figure out like why this girl would have taken this poison. Like just the, the sort of devastating Shakespearean context of like suicides and mm -hmm. lovers. And, but I didn't quite get why a young girl would just take rat poison until I started talking to the administrators at the hospital. And these guys told me, yeah, don't you know this happens all the time? All of these girls, and he hands me this ledger with the names of like dozens and dozens of girls who had all taken poison. Most of them hadn't died. And one of the doctors who was in the room, he goes, yeah, I heard the father and the daughter talking before she died. And she said she didn't mean to kill herself. She was trying to scare her family and it had become this cry for help that these young women trapped in the rigid confines of gender structures in Afghanistan to, to ne negotiate a bit more freedom. And it was fucking devastating. It was like, it all kind of clicked into place. I'm like, holy shit, Mazar Sharif, like you've, you've got, you've, the world is so global now in terms of information. These women can watch Homeland. These women can watch Modern Family. These young girls can be exposed to the world that they can't have, which in some ways is more painful than not knowing about it. They can't be blissfully ignorant. So they really know the contours of their privation. And I think in that respect, it created this, this surge in how does one, how does one fight for one's rights when one has no rights? And in this particular town, in this particular moment in Afghanistan, they were doing it with their lives or with the threat of their lives. So I kind of crafted this narrative about these women, but then the bigger picture was like, this is a moment and these are the cross currents of culture. You've got this rigid, staid, sort of sedimentary reality in Afghanistan juxtaposed by a world that they can all see. And, uh, and so that kind of became one of the things that I did. I would just look for these human stories, these people who to me were really rich and really meant something and then figure out how to contextualize them. That was one way. I mean, the other thing is like you take, you grapple with the bigger issues. You, you know, one of the things I did a lot of was embed with the Afghan army mm -hmm. because I felt like, you know, everybody would do it once. And there'd be like a marquee piece, like me and the Afghan army, and here I am. And there was a, like one of my favorite pieces like that was a, a friend who writes for the New York Times and Magazine, The New Yorker, who did one of the very first embeds with the Afghan army. But I kind of found that as a newspaper writer, it was more important to sustain that. That was the only way to see the war. It was the only way to see what was happening. 
So I was really negative on this war in my particular era. In some cases, I'd have even I'd have colleagues and other journalists come and tell me I was too negative. But the thing was, when you're out there with these guys in the middle of a firefight and you see how they comport themselves, there was no other way to see it. I mean, in Kabul, listening to the to the generals talk and watching the shitty reporting coming in, you could, it was easy to kind of feel like, oh, maybe it's not so bad, but man, out in the field, those guys were just outclassed at every turn. Um, so that, that was another way that I kind of, how does one write about a war? Well, I think it's important, especially if we're trying to figure out what's happening, mm -hmm. to get out on the front lines, to see it. And I think that was one of the reasons we were writing a lot of critical stuff. We wrote about Kunduz and how it was gonna fall six months to eight months before it fell because I was on the ground in Kunduz looking around like, holy shit, the Taliban is at the gate. Even people in town knew that could happen. Um, so yeah, it, it sort of, initially I think I found my way in through just telling human stories, trying to rehumanize people, like doing a profile of the guy who buried suicide bombers, mm -hmm. you know, in anonymous graveyards. Mm -hmm. um, he just, to me, was such a beautiful person because mm -hmm. In spite of war and everything else, he... So this is a guy who's uh, been put in this position of essentially no negotiating the release of corpses from both sides or all sides of the conflict. You That's go to the Taliban, guy. different guy? Okay. Yeah. No, that, that, that guy was the same kind of thing. So, yeah. no, this guy literally just was the, the, the municipal barrier. Like, he took all the dead bodies of the unwanted and the unclaimed mm -hmm. and buried them in this pauper's graveyard. And... Most of his people these days were suicide bombers because nobody claimed them. Their families didn't know where they were, where they'd gone. And so his job was kind of to do that. But in the same way that the guy that you're referencing, he was, he was one of these characters who, who to me just personified the best of what war can do or can bring out in someone. I mean, he's got this horrible job where he goes into the Taliban areas and claims the bodies of government soldiers and then goes into the government areas and claims the dead bodies of the Taliban soldiers so that people, families, loved ones can have a bit of closure. And he just did it. He barely got paid for it. You know, he, he lost two sons. He lost two sons. I mean, Taliban. Yeah, it was pretty fucking devastating, his, um, his trajectory, but he did it. You know, he sort of, in this, in the midst of this sort of gut-wrenching violence, he, he was a better man. I'm curious about your, let's talk a little bit about your Times Mag piece where you um, embedded with the ANP and you found this guy. Tell, tell me about the genesis of that story because it also was a hell of a reveal with that piece. Right? <laughs> yeah, it was a reveal for me too. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. So how, how did you get that story? Okay. So I knew, I mean, in the same way that I kind of started doing fiction, I, I wanted to do something that went a little bit deeper. You know, I, by that time I'd probably done seven or eight embeds with the Afghan army and each one had produced to me, a piece that symbolized something about the war. But I hadn't done anything with the police. So I started to think about the police and realize like how significant their role was, how underutilized they are. In many of these countries where there's terrible security situations, there's almost always barely a functioning police. Mexico has the same problem. The army gets dispatched to do policing activities because the police can't handle it. And in the case with Afghanistan, the police had been so militarized because there was no such thing as community policing. There was no such thing as doing the kinds of intelligent work, like walking your beat, getting to know people, that make it impossible for insurgents to infiltrate because you know everybody. So these guys were walled up in barracks with heavy weapons firing out. And they didn't 
if they walked around, you know, they'd probably get smoked. Um, so I wanted to do that. I wanted to, I wanted to go to a place that was incredibly dangerous where that job was incredibly difficult and find a charismatic police commander trying to do the one thing that I think would, could regenerate something in these communities, so it could create kind of solidarity and community and get at some of, address some of the root problems. You know, in so much as your average Afghan peasant sees the government, it's in the form of a police officer. And that became, to me, an interesting, an interesting way in which to explore the, the failing security of Afghanistan and the failure of the war. So, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, and so it's interesting because it, it, the piece kind of becomes or uh, delves into the fact that, you know, uh, as the Americans are scaling down, uh, it's really the, the provision of services to these areas that don't have services that are, that are going to win, you know, tip, tip the tide. Totally. Uh, and you get, you know, uh, and it's also the Taliban by intimidating judges, uh, by um, bombing A&P at the checkpoints and then forcing them to, you know, sort of armor up and withdraw from the sort of community-based policing. Um, that that's a war on their part, uh, very much to inhibit uh, the central government's reach. Right? Absolutely, no, that's, that's exactly, that's exactly right. But to do that is again, like, so you know, Thematically, this is an important thing. It's community policing. It's getting out into these worlds and getting to know people and building trust. So how do you do that? What's the best way to write about that? Well, you find a charismatic guy and you go and follow him around for two weeks. You gotta have a photographer who's willing to do it with you. Um, so I had, by that point, I had made a lot of sources, both in the army and the police. So I reached out to this, this great uh, general who was just a huge help to me when I was there. It's General Razak. He was in charge of Logar and Mordok, these two pretty gnarly provinces just south of Kabul. And, um, and I asked him, I was like, hey, who can you introduce me to, to to kind of help me realize this? And he was always doing that. He was always finding and connecting me with people to who I could trust because there's enough danger going into combat with these guys, but you want to be sure you're with a unit that's not going to kill you. Yeah, and at the time, as you mentioned in your piece, blue-on-blue crimes are up. You've yeah. got... One of the ones was a, a Afghan national policeman who sedated his colleagues and then allowed the Taliban to come in and kill them. Yeah, like fucking a dozen of them or something. I don't even remember the number. It was 20-some, but it was bad. So that stuff was happening. And this guy basically put me in touch with the police commander of Logar province. And that guy was great. You know, we sat down and kind of pitched him on what I wanted to do. And I think he was like, what the fuck is this guy thinking? But okay. And he told me about Qasim. Qasim was this guy in this district called Baraki Barak, who was was just a really charismatic guy who was trying to make a difference, who was trying to like, you know, putting all the effort he could into creating the reality that the story was sort of envisioning, or rather what what could be seen as a, as a means to reverse some of the intransigent violence. So yeah, I, I convinced the provincial police chief. He said, cool introduced me to Qasim. I spent a couple of days with Qasim talking to him, figuring out if I could trust him. And then Tyler Hicks, who's a photographer I've worked with in a number of these embeds, agreed to join and we went. And um, and yeah, for, for, it was 11 days, we were on the ground with these guys living in, you know, one of the sort of bunk rooms in their, you know, powerless police precinct with no running water. No, they had running water, but no electricity, no heat, no nothing and just kind of saw the world through their eyes and particularly through the eyes of Qasim, who's trying to, you know, who's, who's trying to do different things all the time, settle land disputes, convince the army to come out more and help them, 
you know, engage with local politicians and local leaders and, you know, one of his, and also foster what they call the ALP, the Afghan local police. These guys were, were sort of irregular militiamen in some cases who'd risen up against the Taliban and the government said, great, take all the help we can get. Here's some guns, here's some uniforms and we'll give you what we can. Keep this fighting. Is not a lot, right? So the Afghan yeah. army's got all the good toys. Exactly. And these guys are like borrowing cell phone credit. <laughs> exactly. exactly. A few rounds for their clashing costs. Mm-hmm. So Qasim was, he just had this multifaceted job that was everything. It was all of it. Um, so after following him around for a few days, it just sort of, the, the nature of his work was just so fucking complicated, so difficult to, to kind of... It, it, to me, it was sort of impossible to to stitch together all these things, especially if you're the only force to break the inertia of the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, it was sorry. Go ahead. Well, yeah, you, I mean, you paint a, a pretty great portrait of what an uphill struggle this is, right? And you know, you allude to the fact that there are these various sort of political shifts underneath the surface that are sort of hard to hard to um, to gauge. Completely. And so. There's a great moment too where um, they bring in some guys who are suspected of tipping off the Taliban to the location of one of these uh, local militiamen who was murdered, and they're interrogating him, and the guy doesn't bring his ID, you know? <laughs> and their interrogation style is you know lacking in in uh, sophistication. You know, sophistication, and you know it raises this question of, um, I mean these guys are processed and sent on and detained. Can you ever can you ever get to the truth in that sense? And I'm interested in, in, you know, what happens with Kasim in the end of the story. Um, you've painted this portrait of a, of a sort of labyrinthine political terrain yeah. that, that's hard to, to get your, your mind around. And so what happens in the end of the story with Kasim? God, I mean, that's just, yeah, you know that there's this, knowing what was actually happening behind the scenes, even if you had like intel and intercepts and communications with you know, the Taliban or whomever, it was, it's such a complex landscape. And there's so many, there's like cultural, linguistic, socioeconomic, there's so many barriers between where I'm coming from and where they're coming from and trying to figure out what's going on behind the scenes. Um, and so in the end, we, we leave and I had like written the entire story and it had my ending, which was with this, one of these kids who was a suspect who turned out to just be a college kid, but somebody had given him this information and the police were trace, chasing it down. And this guy was getting kind of locked up and let go, locked up and let go. And I thought, well, that's the end of the story. So Tyler and I go back to the police headquarters, check out with the head of the national police in this, the, who introduced me to Qasim. And then we take off and we're back in Kabul. Maybe like a week later, very shortly after, there was a massive attack on the, the state police operation, not where Qasim was, but where Qasim's boss was, the guy who introduced me to Qasim, where we'd spent our last night. And, you know, I can't remember the number now, it's been a while, but more than a dozen police. It was one of the single biggest attacks on the police in Lobar province. In the country. Yeah, it was 20, yeah, it was in the country. And uh, and it was kind of crazy. We were like, wow, that's that's a good thing we left when we did, because, well, it would have sucked if we'd been there. And so I'm like, I'm going through the final edits of the magazine piece. We've pretty much got it written. Editors are happy with it. It's going to be a cover story, and we're all cool. Photographs are in. It's done. And I'm doing last-minute fact-checking, and Cosm hasn't been answering his phone. And I'm like, what the fuck, man? Cosm was pretty responsive. I mean, the dude did have to get credit from, you know, borrow credit for his phone because he wasn't, he hadn't been paid in a couple months. But 
I thought, I can usually get this guy. Finally, Kassam isn't answering. So we call, again, the National Police General who introduced us. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, ah, Kassam's been arrested. And I was like, what? what? This is like the final, final edits have to be done by Friday. Like we're going, this is being submitted for proofing. And it's like fucking Wednesday evening. So two days ahead. And I'm just like freaking the fuck out. I'm like, what do you mean he got arrested? And apparently through some investigation, they determined that Qasem had given the Taliban access to the national police headquarters, to the, the state police headquarters that had killed the 20 people, which was a mind fuck for me because I mean, I was in some pretty dark places with Qasem where like there was active combat. That guy never ever showed any signs of going wanting to sell me or Tyler out. I mean, two Americans, two journalists for the New York Times would have been worth a fortune for him. So if he was colluding with the Taliban, why the fuck wouldn't he You, I mean, $2 million assets literally walked into his hands in a place where if we had been kidnapped, nobody would have blamed him because it's just fucking dangerous there. But anyways, they said they claimed they'd found evidence of ID, equipment. They said that they thought he was the one who actually planned the murder of the, the local police militiamen. His brother started to blame him. And it was suddenly like, in one second, it all switched. Kasim went from being this protagonist, this very clear protagonist, to having a giant question mark over his head. And to me, it was sort of this like, at first I was freaking the fuck out, right? I didn't, it's a thing I didn't see right in front of me. What I saw right in front of me is, did my story just get fucked? Did I miss this? Am I, am I so fucking stupid I missed that this guy was, you know, the American slash Afghan enemy? And so I freaked out and just sort of reported my way through what had happened. And I stopped and I realized, no, this is fucking Afghanistan. It's this unknowable quality of an unknowable shifting of alliances and this kind of war-torn mentality where when those alliances shift, there's no mourning. There's nobody sitting around being like, impossible. Because they've seen impossible happen in 40 years of war. And so they're kind of just like, yeah, it's messed up. Gus Gossam was with the bad guys. Next. Land of unknown unknowns. Yeah, exactly. Did you ever, have you gone back or looked into it since? Did you ever want to try to send somebody to get to the bottom of it? Or with the uh, host, Lude? He stayed, he stayed for a while until I was there in prison with the NDS, and they wouldn't tell us anything else. They kept it really secret, and I couldn't ever really quite tell whether that was because they were blaming him for something he hadn't done, and they didn't have the evidence to back it up or because he'd actually done something and it was a real national security investigation and they weren't going to tell us stuff. Mm -hmm. I actually haven't, I haven't thought about what's happened to him in a while. I think I probably will email somebody. Maybe just thinking about it now, I wonder because I, I implicitly trusted him. I mean, I, I emailed Tyler when I found out and he was just like, what the fuck? For real, like he's like, no way, no way. Cause he had the same thing, same thought I did. Like we'd ask Kasim to let us like go spend a night in some remote fucking local police outpost. Like, and he was like, no way, that's too dangerous. You got reporters asking to go to places where they can be kidnapped. He, again, it was, it would have been a perfect crime. Why go and kill 20 of your colleagues when you can kidnap two American journalists? Did that make you think about, I mean, obviously you've, wrestled with the question of what you could know as a journalist in, in Afghanistan. I mean, did that reshape your priorities and thinking about security and, and whether, uh, you know, you can ever 
make informed decisions about security? I mean, how, mm-hmm. what's the legacy of that for you? I spent a lot of time on security. Um, I would always come up with a really in-depth plan because there were these stories that we were doing like in places like Tagab in Kapisa, which is a district right outside of Kabul where the Taliban had completely taken over. Um, that story didn't so much change as it did reinforce the tax credit. Whenever I wanted to do an Afghan embed, I would always go to a trusted source from the beginning and say, I want to do something here. Who do you know? Who do you trust? Who can you talk to? Whether it was an off-the-record conversation with the U.S. Special Forces guys who knew people in certain places and could say, you can trust that guy, that guy you can't trust. Whether it was an Afghan commander like my friend General Razak who would say, this guy's good, this, guy, this guy's an asshole, this guy you can trust. Or the U.S. advisors or a state governor who I happen to know. I'd always start from the point of, I need a trusted reference. And then I'd go to that person, I'd spend days talking to them. I'd go through a list of questions, try and make sure that these guys were, were trustable. And then I'd come back and I'd write up a security analysis with our security advisors. You know, this is how we're gonna do it. This is where we're gonna be. This is what exfil would look like. These are the kinds of first aid precautions we're taking. These are our options or possibilities for escape if we get into X, Y, and Z situation. The thing with Qasem, I don't know, I don't think I took seriously that he was charged. Something else was happening under the, on, behind the scenes. Either his beef was specifically with the police and not about a Taliban American dynamic, or he was, he was the easiest person to pick up and got framed. But it wasn't like I suddenly, I mean, there's so much that is unknowable. All you can do is kind of mitigate the risk as much as possible. So we kind of became experts in risk mitigation. And the great thing about the guys, the security guys that I was working with, if I kind of present them with this impossible task, I want to go into a Taliban controlled area and see what it looks like. And they'd be like, fuck. And then we just go through, okay, how do we make it happen? It was never no, it was always how. So the bar for that one became really high. I had to go interview a bunch of different commanders and record their answers to specific questions the security advisor wanted to know about. And even still, we got fucking ambushed in a terrible gunfight. So there was, I mean, you, you mitigate as much as you can, but at the end of the day, like, what are you doing there if you're not going out and trying to see what's actually happening? If you're gonna sit in your fucking compound, why, why play this game? Go do something else. So it's, there's a certain threshold of risk you have to accept. And I think the real pros, the guys who I admire, they take that risk and they mitigate it as much as they can and then they make a calculated decision. Is a mitigated risk worth the benefits of the story? You can argue no story is worth certain risks of death, etc. But in, in the mitigation process, I think you you control for that a little bit. You're trying to trying to lower the stakes. And again, it just it becomes a cold kind of analysis between how much can we protect this and how much are we exposed and what is the value of the story ultimately. Um, Who are some of the guys that you admire the most, you think do it best? What specifically, war correspondents? I don't know, I mean, who, are your, who, who do you read? Who do you try to learn from? Who do you... Uh... Shit, man, this is always a hard question. There's so many, so many writers who, whose work I admire and for different reasons. I mean, right, if we're just talking about war, we're talking about the coverage of war and how one writes about it. Obviously, I've always been a big fan of John Lee Anderson. I think Dexter Filkins did really good work. Um, C.J. Chivers was, you know, he's sort of a lion of that world. Very, very credible, very serious-minded. Again, a guy who's 
very conscious of security and the considerations one has to take. Um, those were those were the guys that I was reading a lot when I was Anthony Shadid was incredible. That guy was that guy's work was it, it, it was elevated to sort of a literary quality. Mm -hmm. um, God, there's so many others who's I'm not I'm not even thinking about right now. But that's the start. Yeah, it's like an Oscar acceptance speech. Yeah, exactly. It's like who all do you, you know? Like we're all you know. Like go back to Reisard Kapuscinski, you know, yeah. or some of these older guys who you know were doing war correspondence, you know. Halberstam, yeah, Halberstam, you know, like a bright shining lie. The the Vietnam War coverage to me became a hugely influential influential body of work as I started to watch this war deteriorate. I remember, the State Department invited me. Like I was supposed to go there because I wanted to talk to some of their SRAP people, their senior representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan people. And they're like, yeah, yeah, cool, yeah, no, no, we're happy to talk to you. You know, of course, we'll be off the record, but blah, blah, blah. By the way, would you mind talking to a few analysts here? And I was like, yeah, that's weird. Okay, but cool. Anyways, they lead me into this conference room and there's like 30 fucking people at a table and I'm at the head of it and they want me to basically brief them on what I've been seeing. I was like, this is fucking weird. Like, it's not my job to tell you guys what's going on. Like, read what I write. But I was, you know, I was like, you know what, fine. I'll tell you what I tell anybody who, I've, who I talk to about this stuff. It's like, I'm giving you secret information. And we were talking and they were, you know, at the time, ISIS was starting to take over sections of Iraq. There was this deep fear from the Afghanistan desk that a similar thing could happen with the Taliban. You know, there could be this sudden, like, sweeping takeover. So they were worried about that, and they were like, do you think the Iraq situation is analogous to the Afghanistan situation? Could the same thing happen? And at the time, I actually have my shelf, bookshelf over there, the modern classic library of collected works of the Vietnam War mm -hmm. by the Neo Sheehan's, Halberstam's, all the, you know, Michael Hur's, all the seminal pieces about Vietnam. And I'd been reading approximately the place in the Vietnam War that was where we were in the Afghan War. The Americans were trying to figure out a way to leave with their heads held high because it was kind of a recognition that things hadn't gone well. And I remember sitting there talking to these State Department people saying, no, I don't think Iraq is the proper analogy. I think Vietnam is. And there was just like the whole room just went, oh. And someone was like, wait, you think the fucking Taliban or take the whole country over? I said, potentially, if there's not a peace deal, the Afghan army is not prepared and America has a pain threshold and they're rapidly approaching it. And if this peasant army could keep off history's most sophisticated and powerful army for more than a decade with a few bullets, a few fucking charged explosive devices, what are they gonna do to the Afghan army? Who has less training, less equipment, less hard. So yeah, I, I, but I remember how influential, like reading those articles and watching, looking for the echoes and what I was seeing in Afghanistan and what was happening in Vietnam kind of became this, it kind of became like a, like a treasure map in some ways. We were like, holy shit, they were, they were struggling with local armed groups rising up against you know, Viet Cong and trying to organize and aggregate them, but it was a disaster and it wasn't working. And, you know, there were similar kinds of defections within the Vietnamese army towards the, the supposed enemy. It was this crazy, like, unknowable thing that was happening behind the scenes that the Americans and others couldn't quite understand. Same thing was happening in, in my mind in Afghanistan. So, yeah, those guys were, vis-a-vis -vis that, were hugely influential writers. That's a really good jumping over point to Mexico. You, you know, you write some of your reporting about 
explicit links that you've learned from Afghanistan or, and how that shaped your thinking on Mexico. Yeah. What are some of the similarities and differences as a journalist in, in the stories that you know, you're confronted with, with telling you? Actually, you know what's interesting? I, um, God, this is like covering a region especially one that's not consumed by conventional war, is so much harder than war reporting. War reporting felt kind of natural. I enjoyed it, but the, the drama is very literal. It is a life and death thing. The protagonists, the antagonists, the structure and the import of it are almost predetermined. You know, they're pre-baked. Like, they are what they are. You're at war. It explains itself. How do you contextualize Guatemala? How do you contextualize Mexico? How do you write about it in 360 degrees, you know? How do you bring the life and the vibrance and the pride of the people? How do you explain the impunity and the corruption and how it gnaws at civil society? How do you write about the rule of law? How do you, how do you come to understand the inner workings of politics at a time when their political structure is being tested like never before? So in a lot of ways, you know, I think there were, there were similarities in that there's similarities through all of journalism, which is synergy, or synthesis, excuse me, finding vast amounts of information and figuring out how to distill and weave it together to say something about a place and a moment in time. Did it with hedge funds, did it in you know the west side of Chicago, did it in Afghanistan, that's what I have to do here. Coming to unearth and find these, these disparate details and realities and make them cohere. In some ways, Mexico I found a lot harder than Afghanistan because grasping Afghanistan was one country. It was like not that big. It's in the midst of a war. So the reporting lines and the, the significance is there. Mexico to me is, is like India in that it's this screaming contradiction. It is this maximum place where everything exists all at once. And to say one thing is to ignore something else. So coming up with one coherent way to describe a nation is complex and whose history is so layered and whose tragedies and realities are so complex, I, I found it immensely hard to kind of, to really grasp what it was, that, it, that what it is that Mexico is. You know, it's not a, it's not an easy place to wrap your head around. Mm -hmm. You've got so many different, so many different historic kind of antecedents that, that define what this place is, that they almost conflict, conflate, and yeah, fucking confound. So some of the big stories here that you've dealt with, culture of impunity, you know, we've got the, the murder, the disappearance of 43 mm -hmm. college students, which uh, teams of international investigators have come in and found evidence that there were uh, elements of the military that were present uh, at the site of the murder. Uh, they painted a picture that um, there's been some sort of effort reaching the highest levels of government to keep them from getting to the bottom of the truth. Um, how do you, what are the red lines here in Mexico? And maybe how are they different for you than they are for a Mexican journalist? You mean in terms of what you can and can't write about? Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't, here I don't really observe red lines. I mean, the red lines I see is fact or not fact. Like, if I can prove it, if I have documents, if I've been told enough, if I know it's true, I'm going to write it. But I'm an American journalist, and the way I'm treated here is far, far different. The risks I face are far, far different from a Mexican journalist. This is one of the deadliest countries in the world for journalists. So you have some really brave Mexican journalists, almost all of whom are freelance, because for a company to hire them, it would be toxic because so much of the funding comes from the government to support media here. But the vast majority of journalism here is, is self-censored. 
self-censored in respect that people know they can't write about certain things, self-censored in respect that like the editor might get a call or the owner of a newspaper might get a call and be told, you're not writing that story. And so then they go down to the newsroom and say, hey, you're not writing that story. Before it's ever published, they, it gets censored, squashed. You know, this for economic considerations or because they're touching on corruption at government or, or is it cartels that are sort of off limits writing about? All of the above. You know, you've got the economic considerations that businessmen have to consider. Vast amounts of money is, come, comes from government budgets to advertise in these media outlets. So there's huge financial pressure. You've also got, I mean, look, if you ever wanted to threaten someone, all you have to do is point to like 90 journalists that have been killed here in the last 12 years. And it's like, don't fuck around. And this is what happens if you do. And that isn't just the narcos, that's the government too. In some cases, there's more threats that emanate from the government than there are the narcos. Confront that for a second. The government threatens journalists more than organized crime. Now there's certainly some nasty organized criminal elements here. But who expects the cartels to comport themselves with dignity and responsibility? Who expects the cartels to be good guys? They sell vast quantities of drugs and their currency is violence. But the government? So, so there is there's censorship both on the economics and the literal threat from the government. And then same thing with the narcos. In some of these places, the narcos have reporters on staff who spy on other reporters and what they're writing and what they're doing. In Veracruz, there were several people we interviewed who told us about individuals who had been hired by the narcos down there to essentially monitor and control the media. So it's a, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's not a great place if you're a Mexican journalist because even if you have the talent, the chops and an outlet for whom to write things, you're, it's kind of coming at you from all sides. Yeah, it's a really difficult landscape to navigate. So I don't, I don't pretend to think that what I face down here even comes close to what they face. It's a very different world. What do you think the public perception of the media is in that regard? I mean, are they lionized? Are they ignored? I mean, we're at a time in America right now where there's a lot of discontent with media and, and suspicion of media and traditional yeah. news. Um, and here you've got a country that's grappling with, with you know, an absence of rule of law at, at so many levels. Yeah, and, and really a real existential challenge for free press yeah. and freedom of speech in a lot of ways. Um, Are there heroic Mexican journalists that you think, um, you know, have a lot of you know, support or... Yeah, 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 no, I think, I think, look, the Mexican public is kind of accustomed to a self-censorship that occurs in most of the media. And so those who have proven themselves uncensorable are lionized yeah they are and a lot of them are women there's a lot of incredibly talented tough brave female journalists here Lydia Cacho Carmen Aristegui um, the, the, the list goes on there's but it's not easy for them either I mean they're kind of and but they've they've kind of arrived at a level where to where they're a little bit too well known to become as threatened as say maybe a local reporter trying to do crusading journalism. And even within the confines of what is permissible, there's still a lot of journalists who do good work, who do good investigations, who figure out what's going on. But there is that threat that kind of looms over everyone. And only a few journalists here have been able to kind of break through that to do the bigger stuff. You know, a friend of mine is overseeing this investigative project and 
the person was telling me, you know, we have trouble because some of the people we're getting our funding from, we're running into investigations that that could hurt their business interests. We have to figure out how to nav navigate that. Is it wiser to take the money they've given us? Because there's a million things to investigate rather than bite the hand that feeds us when they are allowing us to be a truly investigative outlet in a country where there isn't a lot of that. Or do we have to write this story and risk ruining everything? Because that's, those are our principles. You know, it's not a, it's not a generic conversation here. It's a real, you know, rubber hits the road kind of question that these guys have to ask themselves. That's all for this week. If you'd like to check out some of Ozum's reporting, find us online at detourspodcast.com forward slash episodes. We'll be back again next Tuesday. Until then, I'm Bill Wheeler, signing off.